Hey, Mercy Hill. Right now, Nate is taking us through a series on Genesis and doing a good job of showing us the intention of the original author as these texts were written, as Genesis was written, and showing us how Genesis points us back to Jesus. Genesis really is a very rich book and a very dense book. There's a lot to cover, and there's a lot more than can be covered just on a Sunday morning unless we want to take you know the next decade or so to go through the book. So after talking about it a little bit, we wanted to do this uh, podcast to supplement the sermon series for those who want to dive a little deeper and understand some of the more difficult questions that Genesis raises to its readers. I think most of the time it'll be Nate and myself doing these recordings. For this time, it's just me. I'm just going to give us a little introduction to our Bibles before starting off in the first book of the Bible. So anyway, here we go. So why take this deeper dive into the book of Genesis? Well, first of all, it is the first book in our Bibles, and it begins a very long narrative that stretches from Genesis to Kings. Now, the thing with it being a narrative is the first chapters of Genesis, the beginning book of the Bible, is going to set up for us all of the important themes, all of the important literary structures. It's going to teach us how to read the rest of our Bibles. So for that reason, we need to start at the beginning and try to understand the contours of the narratives that it presents. We need to understand the style of the book. We need to understand the literary structures that it likes to use. We need to understand the themes that it opens up, the expectations that it creates for later narratives. And that will teach us how to read the rest of Scripture. And once we are familiar with these narratives, we will also be able to understand things that are not narrative in the Bible, like the prophets and the poetry and the letters in the New Testament, because they are all picking up on the themes that are present in these beginning narratives. Now, before we can talk about these narratives and these themes, it would be beneficial to talk about inspiration. What are these narratives? What is the Bible? And also, what is it not? How did the scriptures come to be, and how does that influence the way that we read them? Now, first, I just want to point out that the Bible is a divine and human book. Sometimes the divine aspect of the Bible gets overemphasized, which it absolutely is brought forth by the Spirit of God. But in doing that, we lose the human aspect of the Bible and what that means for our study of Scripture. So there's a popular idea that, and I, I grew up with this, that the human authors of Scripture did not know what they were writing, uh, maybe even to the point that they were under a trance when they were writing their books. And I think it makes sense why a lot of us may believe that, or why I was somehow taught that as a new Christian and that may or may not be where most of you are, but I just want to put my finger on that because that is a popular belief that does affect how we read the scriptures. If we look at it as purely from God's finger, written by his hand, with no human mind active in the writing of scripture, it will cause some problems for how we read these books down the road. So the way that the Bible actually depicts the process of authorship is that God will come to a human who he has providentially prepared through their lives. He has given them his spirit to enable them to write these books, to give them wisdom, and to craft them into the person that he needs them to be to write these books. And then with many of them, as we see in the prophets, 
God will come to the prophet and say, hey, I have a message for you to go deliver. Then the prophet goes, delivers the message, and writes it down. Often they write a narrative that surrounds their message. Because, again, for some of us, this may be very familiar territory. For others, this may be very strange, very weird. It may seem like uh, this view takes some of the divinity away from the Bible, which it, it absolutely does not. It is God's Spirit who enables and crafts the person into who they need to be to write this, who gives them the wisdom to write these books. Now, first of all, think of Paul and his letters, or most of the New Testament. Um, a lot of them are letters, and so I don't think many of us think of Paul when he's writing his letters as in a trance or having no idea what he is doing. He actually is crafting his letters, the literary structures, he is crafting his arguments um, very intelligently using his mind. It doesn't seem to be like it's directly out of God's mouth. It's not spoken that way. I think that's uh, an easy way for us to familiarize ourselves with this concept. And even if we look in Luke's gospel, he starts out in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke's gospel is based on his his research into the story of Jesus. He says, well, I've been a disciple for a while. He never actually was with Jesus, but he says, I've been hanging around for long enough, and I have heard a lot of the stories. I should be a good historian and write some of this down so that I can pass on the gospel message, in particular to Theophilus. So a portion of Luke's book is not based on direct divine knowledge beamed into Luke's head, but it's based on careful examination of witnesses. Now, this makes the book of Luke no less inspired by the Spirit. The Spirit was with him, helping him and training him as he was doing this. This is a work of God, but it is very much a work of the human mind at the same time. Now, to take us back into the Old Testament, I think Jeremiah is a good case study for how inspiration works in the Bible. So we see in Jeremiah 1, God comes to Jeremiah, and the story is recorded as God says, hey, I have a sermon for you to deliver. I have a message for you to deliver to the people, to tell them that they have not been faithful to the covenant, and so they are going to have to suffer the consequences of the covenant that they agreed to. And Jeremiah, rather than thinking this is going to be an effortless experience where I go under a trance and write this book, uh, he he says, I can't speak. Um, I'm, I'm a youth. I don't talk too good, and so I don't really want to. So the beginning of the creation of Jeremiah's message is, is given to us here, and it wasn't a um, divine knowledge beamed into Jeremiah's head kind of situation. It was rather a, a narrative of Jeremiah having a, a will that interacts with God, and, and here he tries to argue with God and say, I don't want to do it. Um, we see in the next chapter, the beginning of chapter 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. And it goes on with the message that um, Jeremiah proclaims. Now, the important thing to that is that Yahweh didn't come to Jeremiah and say, Hey, I'm going to take over your, your body and start writing or start speaking. Rather, it's, Hey, I have a message, and I just want you to relay it. Take it, memorize it, and then go and speak it. And that's exactly what Jeremiah does. And then later in Jeremiah 36, 
Jeremiah is actually compelled by Yahweh to write down all of the sermons that Yahweh has given him thus far. So he recruits a scribe, and they begin writing down his sermons, and they send it to the king. Well, the king doesn't like it, so he burns the scroll. And then, at the end of chapter 36, Jeremiah is told to write the scroll again. So, it says, Jeremiah took, this is verse 32 of chapter 36, Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it, At the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So, here... Uh, maybe these words were commissioned by Yahweh, but the prophet seems to take the liberty of adding some words to the scroll of Jeremiah. Now, if the Bible, or at least the book of Jeremiah, had been written by God, been dropped out of heaven, completed, or been beamed into Jeremiah's head and written down all at once, then why is there this editing process? Why is Jeremiah adding words? It should have been a complete book at the very beginning. Rather, Jeremiah, as the prophet, since he has been commissioned by God, he has the authority to add to these messages to expound upon what Yahweh has told him to share with his people. We even see similar editorial comments in Genesis. In Genesis 22, uh, Abraham is going up Mount Moriah with Isaac to sacrifice him, and at the last minute, Yahweh provides a ram to sacrifice instead of Isaac. And so in verse 14, we're told, so Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, as it is to this day, that is the, the author of this book, or maybe a later editor, looking back on this story and saying, we still say that today, but, but when is today? This is sometime later in Israel's history. It's obviously not, you know, today from my perspective or our perspective, this is today from the perspective of a Jew that probably lived two to 3,000 years ago. He is the active human mind in the authorship of this book, and he is leaving a note for his readers so that they will be able to better understand the story and have a connection to their own culture in their time. And there are other little notes throughout Scripture where a later editor or the author will reach in and just give some cultural background information that may have been irrelevant to the actual subject of the narrative, say like Abraham or Moses, but to a Jew who is living, you know, a thousand years later, or a few hundred years later, it would be more meaningful. We wouldn't expect to see this kind of thing if the Bible were completed all at once by God who is outside of time. Now, I just want to highlight one more thing as an example of how the Bible is inspired. I think that looking at Bezalel, the guy who constructed the tabernacle or was in charge of the effort of the tabernacle construction, is a really good case study for the Spirit's work in inspiring people to create the Bible as we know it. So this is in Exodus 35, starting in verse 30. It says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and for carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, from the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or a designer, or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, or by a weaver or any sort of workman or skilled designer. 
Now, what's important in here is Bezalel is filled with the Spirit of God, and I don't think many of us would imagine him uh, going under a trance every day, going into work, because this is a process. This is not a, a quick sit down and make this tabernacle and you're done. Um, this took months and months. So he is also not only gifted with the ability, the skills, and the wisdom by the Spirit of God to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, but he is able to teach and lead teams of people who are going to do this. This is not a, a quick and done project purely motivated by God's Spirit moving and creating the tabernacle, but rather God has decided to use his Spirit to empower humans to organize as a community and come together and build his home, the tabernacle. So God is used to operating by these means, by using his spirit to empower humans to carry out his plans and purposes. After all, he made us in his image to be his royal representatives to represent his goodness to the earth and his rule and his life. Now, what does this mean for our reading of scripture? It means that we should expect very human things as we read. Um, we should expect a cultural context. These were ancient Israelites living in what is called the ancient Near East, where there's Israel and Mesopotamia and Egypt and ancient Canaan. Um, all these peoples lived in the area of the Mediterranean, you know, 3,000 years ago. And we should expect to see elements of their culture in the Bible. It also wouldn't be surprising for us to find intricate literary structures in the Bible. We've already mentioned that the first part of the Bible is laid out as a narrative. It's a big story. Something that I've seen in the past is uh, when you see Scripture as something that is purely divine, that is more or less dictated to the prophet when he has no idea what he's writing, or um, better yet, it is beamed into his head, so to speak, so that he doesn't even realize that he's writing— um, there are lots of things about the narrative of Scripture where we are looking for um, special information that would not make sense on the surface. But if these books are written by humans, inspired by God, to humans, these books are, are meant to be intelligible. They are meant to communicate Yahweh to a group of people. In particular, it is meant to communicate Yahweh to a group of people in the ancient Near East, 3,000 years ago, who at some point in their history came out of Egypt, brought out by Yahweh, and settled in the midst of Mesopotamia and Egypt and Canaan. And this narrative that is communicating Yahweh to them and telling them something about themselves, they're going to see it in terms that they can understand. They're going to see the cultural elements that are around them. Um, just for instance, uh, in our culture, we have probably about a hundred different Cinderella books and movies that are all telling the same general storyline, but there's different little twists, little variations on the story in each retelling to communicate something specific. So in, in that sense, the makers of these different Cinderella movies, they're using a cultural motif, the Cinderella motif, and they're even often putting the title Cinderella on there so that you know what to expect. And then they communicate profound things by just changing the story a little bit or adding some new element that causes you to think about uh, it in a new way or think about something in your own life in a new way. The biblical authors are doing that. They are taking what the Israelites already know 
from their neighbors about who God is or who humans are. And often he, he often he's not just taking those and making small changes. He's often turning those ideas on their head to um, show who Yahweh is and who humanity is in light of Yahweh. But he still uses those cultural elements so that it makes sense to the Israelites. I bring all this up because we are going to run into this a lot in Genesis. And without having this knowledge in our back pocket, a lot of it will be very confusing or will be very liable to be misinterpreted. And I want to take us back to the ancient Near Eastern context. I want to take a look at the literary structures and bring out what the narrative is supposed to mean to them and then transfer it into our own culture. What does it mean to us in light of what it meant to its original audience? And I don't want to bog this down with a whole lot of technical jargon going into the Hebrew, going into um, specific cases of the ancient culture, but I want to talk about it just a little bit as it comes up, just enough for us to understand what the biblical author is trying to do and what the narrative is supposed to mean to us. So I hope this is helpful to everybody. I'm looking forward to it, and I really hope that by looking further into Genesis, um, like I said, it really forms a, uh, a world. And as we begin to properly understand these narratives, especially in Genesis, we'll start to live in that world um, such that the parts of the Bible that are usually for us um, strange and distant hopefully will become something where we actually feel the narrative tension or the tension in the poetry so that it matters to us. These are not facts that we need to try and extract from the text and learn how to apply them specifically, but we inherently understand the weight of what is being said. And by living in this world, we'll be able to better meditate on Scripture and be shaped by and conformed to it. And ultimately, I hope we'll be able to see Jesus more clearly, be able to better understand what did he do and the things that the Gospels tell us that are already so meaningful to us. How do we dig down another layer and understand understand what Jesus did and what he says to a new depth? Or even those passages that just don't make any sense and that we just can't really find a way to connect to. Um, I'm hoping by understand the themes and living in the world that particularly Genesis creates, uh, those those passages that are, are difficult to understand will actually become very profound texts. Um, I, I've found that as you dive into this material, as you understand the first five books, the Torah of the Bible better, that things that I would have ordinarily just glazed over um, have the most profound meaning in them. Everything is so rich with imagery and symbolism that all come out of this uh, with this worldview that Genesis presents. So I'm looking forward to going over this and thanks for listening.